For the past five weeks, we've been diving into what it means to be alive in Christ and examining how we can do more to see his vision for our lives fully realized. So we're talking about um, the, the idea of interlocking ideas of relationship, identity, and destiny. So we talk about this triune gospel. It has three parts, our relationship with God, our identity in him, and our destiny to live out who he says we are. So relationship is at the foundation. Uh, we talked in weeks one and two about abiding in his love and how nothing is required of us to come into the love of God, to come into his presence, and only that we turn toward him. He's positioned toward us. The Bible says that uh, we've been reconciled to the Father, and he desires for all people to be saved. Identity is the second building block. So we have to realize that before we lift a finger, we are sons and daughters of God. He's called us sons and daughters, not for what we've done, not for anything that we strive for, but simply because that is the identity that he has placed on us. Because he loves us and his face is turned toward us with mercy and grace, we are justified by his righteousness. The Bible actually says we are the righteousness of God. We are the righteousness of God. Think about that. I'm going to be honest with you. I have not felt like the righteousness of God this week. But I am, and you are. We're his people. We're his church. That's so good. Finally, our destiny comes into play. So two weeks ago, Josh introduced the idea of sacrifice to this series. And this is where this whole thing has been headed since the beginning. We, we've taken a look at Romans 12, where Paul instructs us to live our lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And so... Um, just to quickly recap last week, right? We talked about sacrificing. We talked about what being a living sacrifice means. So in the Old Testament, we see people sacrifice bulls and goats and grain and gold to God, and they bring it to the temple, and they put it on the altar, and the priest would receive the offering, right? That's how it used to work. And so we talked about the fact that now the offering that the Lord is looking for on the altar of our lives is our will. It's our preference. And this ties to the sacrifice of Jesus because when Jesus went to the cross, more, just as much as he sacrificed his body, just as much as he sacrificed anything else, he sacrificed his will to the Father before he went there. He prayed in the garden and he said, God, not my will, but yours be done. And so that's the, the attitude, the heart posture that we want to have toward sacrifice. So it doesn't necessarily mean that we're always being called to sacrifice our physical bodies or sacrifice our things. First, he asks for our yes. And so that's kind of what we talked about last week. And now we need to get really personal with that. We need to bring this down to ground level and decide what are we going to do with it every day. We have to uh, kind of think about, like, living it out. So once we give God our will, once we give him our yes, what do we do about it? We have to act on it. If we don't act on it, it's not worth anything. If we don't live it out, I mean, I personally love to get caught up in the theology and talk about the implications of what it means to sacrifice and what does it mean for us to give God our will, but until we act on it, right, it doesn't impact the people around us. And 
I'm going to level with you. I've been feeling really unenthused about this message, and I think it's, I really feel like it's spiritual attack because this is something that is so important. Because today we're going to be talking about sacrificing for others, for the people around us. And it's one of the hardest things to talk to people about because it feels like, if you don't have the right perspective on it, it feels like what I'm saying is you have to do more. You have to do more, and you have to strive, and you have to pick up all these things, and you have to work harder, and you have to, you know, and, and that's, that's how it can come across. But the purpose behind what I'm saying is that when we abide in the love of the Father, when we spend time with Him, and we begin to give Him our will, begin to give Him our preference and our yes, this is what He's going to ask for us to do. And that's just how it is. We see it in the Bible. We see it evidenced in the lives of people around us who have given God their yes. When you give God your yes, this is what he's going to ask you to do with it. So we're going to talk about it. I'm going to pray. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here this morning. God, we thank you for your presence. Jesus, we thank you that you are so good. Thank you that we are your righteousness. Thank you that abiding in your presence is what you've asked from us. This stuff is the overflow. God, we don't want to be empty vessels pouring out our last drop. We want to be filled to overflowing. We want to be filled by you in worship, filled by you in prayer, that our destiny, that the things that we do in our day-to-day lives to live out sacrifice come from a place of overflow. They don't come from a place of striving. They don't come from a place of emptiness. They come from a place of connection with you. We don't stretch ourselves too thin because you equip us, God. You call us and you equip us with your presence, with your goodness, with your mercy. So we just thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So Jesus sacrificed for community. There's a lot of evidence for that in the New Testament. And so where I want to start is actually what I read to you from Revelation last week. So if you were here last week... You may remember, I read to you from Revelation chapter 21. So if you want to follow along with me, I'm going to read the first first four verses to you. And this is describing the consummation of all things. What that means is the final rejoining of God to his creation in a permanent way, the way that it was intended in the garden. So John is describing this, this final rejoining of God and man. And he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away." Revelation 21, 1 through 4. So Jesus, we see Jesus gave himself up for two things. For the reconciliation of God to humanity and for the reconciliation of humanity to itself. Because we see here in these verses the people of God as one. Not divided, not fighting, not, not with dissent among them. Right? We see the people of God as one. And So sometimes we say things like, man was created evil, or humans are sinful in nature. 
And we actually, when we say things like that, we forsake this picture that Jesus gave his life for. We do. When we give ourselves over to having like a theology or a mindset of sin nature, and we look at ourselves and we look at the people around us as having sin nature, that begins to define who they are to us. And we actually negate the work that Jesus did to bring people together. That should not ever be our focus anymore. He gave his life for you and I to have the opportunity to consider ourselves righteous and justified by him. And so we have the responsibility to actually be looking out at the people around us as people who Jesus gave his life to have righteous and justified. To come into his presence, to be united as one, right? To be one people in the presence of God. And so I want us to realize that when we say that we aren't deserving of the gift Jesus gave us, this is hard because people live their entire lives thinking this. When we begin to say that we aren't deserving of the gift that Jesus gave us, it devalues the gift and it devalues the humanity that God created to bear his image. So when we say things like, I didn't deserve what Jesus did for me, you actually did. And he says you did, or else he wouldn't have come. He, God looks at his creation. He looks at the humanity that he created to bear his image. And he says, I want nothing more than to purify them. And that's what he did. So we've got to get on the same page about that, right? The gift that Jesus gave us, he gave us because he loves us. Bringing us together, bringing us into the presence of God, that's because God looked at humanity and decided that we did deserve it. So that's a hard train of thought, especially if you've been there for a long time. But I want you to keep tracking with me. When we say things like that, we actually negate some of the power of the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus lays down his life for us, his friends, he says, your life has intrinsic value. That's how valuable God thinks humanity is, that he became a man and he gave himself for it. That's got to be at the heart of our sacrifice. That's got to be at the heart of giving God our will, giving God our preference, giving God our yes. Because we look around us and we see a humanity, we see a creation that was worthy for God to become a man and sacrifice himself. So that's got to be the starting place. So the way Jesus lays down his life and says, you have intrinsic value, when we lay down our lives for one another, we are saying, you have intrinsic value. When I make sacrifice for someone else, what I'm trying to say is that you are worth it. You are worth that. And so the sacrifice of Jesus was to bring us close to God by serving us. Do you realize that? That is the essence of who Jesus was, is. That's at the core of everything that he did. And so we don't serve a God who wants to be far away. His face is turned toward us. He's waiting for the opportunity to come and dwell among us. He's waiting for the opportunity for us to bear his image, for us to represent him into the earth. We don't serve a God whose desire it is to go back up on the mountain or disappear into the ether. And some people's idea of God is that he's aloof and he's far away and he doesn't desire to come in close, but he desires to come in close. 
Jesus is the perfect representation of the Father. And if the perfect representation of the Father is to come and be a man visible and dwell among us, that means he wants to come in close. And people miss this about the story of Jesus. So you hear people lump Jesus in with like Muhammad and Buddha and you know, these, these other religious figures. But the thing that they miss is that our God became one of us and sacrificed himself. Sometimes I think there's an unhealthy othering when, when we talk about the person of Jesus. People kind of separate Jesus from God when he was on the earth. And we don't do it intentionally. We kind of do it subconsciously. But we're like, yeah, Jesus was a man and he operated as a man. And so sometimes we don't think of him as God. But every action that Jesus made was an action of God toward humans. Jesus was God. God saw it fit to come and take the beating from his creation, to take the scorn and abuse in order to save it, to save us. And that beats the other stories by far. In Islam, right, Muhammad rode into Mecca on a stallion with a sword. Our God rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and was crucified. That story doesn't make us better than everyone else. It makes us their servants. And so what I want to talk to you about is servanthood. And it's a hard thing because I don't always embody it well. I don't always represent the God who came to. But this is what we're called to do. We're called to represent the God who came and sacrificed himself. The God who came and made himself a servant. And so one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot this week is the idea of the upside-down kingdom, right? Because you're thinking about this this idea of this God who came and, and dwelt like a commoner, right? And he served the people and he put himself in places with, with the poor and the lonely and, and the struggling and the sinners, right? That's who he was. That's what he did. But he's the king of kings. And so when I think about that, it makes me think about the upside down kingdom because love is expressed through servanthood and we understand servanthood to be the ultimate sacrifice, The idea of the upside-down kingdom is that, you know, when we think of governments of the world, when we think of the way that people operate, right, people strive for power, people strive for fame, people strive for influence. I mean, think about the culture today, right? Being an influencer on the internet is actually a job now. An influencer, what does that even mean? Jesus didn't strive for influence. He strove to serve people. His influence came that way. And so in John 15, 12 to 14, Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I commanded you. Remember, the commandment is to love one another as he has loved us. First, God calls us to sacrifice our will to him. That's where we start. We don't start by getting a Christ complex and thinking that we have to lay down our lives to everyone around us, and and it doesn't start there. It starts with giving our will to God. It starts with giving him our yes, and we have to remember that because if we get caught up in wanting to serve the people around us, but we're not first giving our will to the Father, if we're not first asking him to direct our steps, we're going to get burnt out. 
And if you think about the two careers that have the highest rate of burnout, it's doctors and pastors. Now, doctors, I understand, because most of them are in a secular workplace, and they're constantly pouring out for the people around them, right? And they struggle, and they end up in substance abuse, and they they don't know what to do with themselves, and their relationships are broken, and they're spread too thin, because they're just giving themselves. And pastors, unfortunately, don't have a much better grid for this. And so what pastors do is they're not in touch with the fact that they need to give their yes to God before they then start to figure out where they need to serve. And so then they just start serving and serving, and they're pouring themselves out where they don't need to pour themselves out, and they're working harder than they need to work, and then all of a sudden, you have burnout, and people leave ministry. And I think when you're in a culture like ours, because we're in a culture where we value the community. We're in a culture where we value your service, right? A lot of churches don't ask anything of their people. They just want you to warm a seat on Sunday morning. But the reason that I think what we're doing is so profound and it's so impactful is because we encourage people to serve the city. We encourage people to serve one another. But the thing that you have to remember is that that needs to come from a place of giving your yes to God, of giving your will to God, and allowing him to direct your steps. That's where it has to come from. It's not saying yes to as many things as you can say yes to, right? It's not, oh, I have to lay down my life for Oxford Vineyard because, you know, they have all these programs that they need me to participate in. We don't need more burnt-out people. We don't need more burnt-out people. We need people who have given their yes to God and are allowing him to direct their steps as they go. That was not in my notes. So give me a second. got to find my place. We're looking forward. This is it. <laughs> God calls us to sacrifice our will to him. So then what? We have to give him our preference, give him our, our will. We have to give him our yes. And he begins to have the liberty to guide and direct our steps. Before we give him our will, we don't realize this. We say, God, you know, what would you have me do? But we're not giving over our preference to him. And then we're wondering why he's not saying anything. Right? When we give our preference over to him, he then has the liberty to come in and direct our steps. This requires for us to partner with him. That's why Jesus calls us friends, not servants, because it's a partnership. So when we start partnering with him, instead of having ourselves in a servant or slave mindset, he then has the liberty to speak into our lives and say, go here, do this, say this to this person. Give this to this person, right? That's how it works. And so once God has that opportunity, he begins to ask us to sacrifice something for others. That's the second step. First, we give him our yes. Then he starts to ask us to sacrifice something for others, to serve, to become the last, the lowest. This is the idea of the upside-down kingdom. The servant is first. The lowest is first. We're looking forward into an age to come, right? What I told you is in Revelation here. We're looking forward into this age to come and enforcing it in the present. Not by legislating it or forcing it upon people, right? But we're enforcing it in the present by serving. That's how Jesus explains that his government works. 
I'm going to read you a quote from one of my favorite books called The Politics of Jesus by John Howard Yoder. And if you want challenged, read this book because it's dense and it's hard and there are some teachings in it that I really had. He says, the believers cry with all of it, but it, it grew me. He says, the believer's cross, the cross that the Lord asks us to pick up and carry, is no longer any and every kind of suffering, sickness, or tension, the bearing of which is demanded. So he doesn't give us these hard things, right? He says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. The believer's cross must, look, must be like the Lord's, the price of their social nonconformity. It is not like sickness or catastrophe or an inexplicable, unpredictable suffering. It is the end of the path freely chosen after counting the cost. It is not an inward wrestling of the sensitive soul with self and sin. It's the social reality of representing in an unwilling world the order to come. Let that sink in. What he's saying here is that we have our sights set on the future. We have our sights set on Revelation 21. And when we talk about sacrifice, we're not talking about a requirement. We're talking about a careful choice. We're talking about one where we look at the gospel and we say, this genuinely might cost me my life. Every comfort I have everything I enjoy, and we go for it anyway. It's not wrestling with sin. I'm going to level with you. This is why I get frustrated with a lot of campus ministries. I get frustrated with campus ministries because they seem to be in the business of sin management often. We're not in the business of sin management. We're in the business of moving forward into what God is asking us to sacrifice for the people around us. And we deal with sin when it comes up. We're not saying it doesn't exist. But what I'm saying is that it's not about wrestling with sin. It's about coming to terms with the fact that the world we live in is not easily changed, but we are here as agents of change who are supposed to be calling that future reality of heaven into the present. That's what we're doing when we pray for someone to be healed. That's what we're doing when we prophesy to someone. We're calling out the gold in them that is definitely there in the age to come. And we're calling it into the present. Amen. That's what we do when we serve the community. It's what we do when we take meals to the fire department. Right? We're talking about bringing the age to come where God dwells with man, man dwells with one another, into the present. Putting down boundaries that we've put up between one another. Putting up putting down prejudice, putting down all these reasons where we say, oh, we can't work with the Catholics because their theology is different, or, oh, we can't, I don't know, serve at Oxford Empty Bowls because I can't preach the gospel there, or I can't, you know, whatever. It's about laying that stuff down. The more we give God our yes, the more we give him our will, the more he will instruct us about how to do this. This idea... Um, I keep, I keep wrestling with this idea of the upside-down kingdom. I love that, that language. Think about that, right? Think about the way that you would think of a government or a kingdom, where you have a king on top, 
And he's, he's giving orders to his, his second in command, you know? And then they're going out and they're enforcing it to the people. And then you have local governments and you have uh, city and state governments and they're enforcing it. And then you have local law enforcement and they're enforcing it. That's just not how it works in the kingdom. I'm sorry, but it's the other way around. And Jesus says that. He says that. And so I'm, I'm, don't hear what I'm not saying. John likes that. I'm not trying to give you a social or political commentary. I'm talking to you about how we in this room function in the government of God. And that's as servants. In Matthew 20, Jesus tells the parable of the workers in the vineyard. So go back and read that. I'm not going to read it to you now because it's too long. He explains that the first shall be last and the last first. The justice of the kingdom of God does not feel fair. In the world, we see people jockeying for position and grasping for power left and right. We talked about that. When we talk about the government of God, we're actually talking about something completely foreign to the world that we're actually called to wholeheartedly embrace with our lives in our personal day-to-day walk with him. In the world, the strong ones get rewarded. The ones who are willing to exploit others to reach the top. But that just isn't so in the kingdom. We don't take advantage of people. Or at least we shouldn't. We're talking about something completely different. And I think maybe that's why I've always been captivated by the Beatitudes. I'm going to read them to you because I've been puzzled by the Beatitudes for a long time. But I've also loved them because they're these profound statements that Jesus makes He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's Matthew 5, 3 through 11. Just highlight those in your Bible right now for me. One reason that these statements have always caught my attention is because we have about five sermons from Jesus in the New Testament, right? We talk about this in Sakam a lot. Most of, see, we think of Jesus like the world thinks of Jesus as a great teacher, teaching, very small fraction of the words of Jesus that we have are Jesus teaching, right? Jesus was the healer, the prophet, the miracle worker, the Messiah who came to bring hope, and he also taught some. But one of these five sermons is this, and I think it's profoundly countercultural, but I also think that they've had my interest because I've never really realized what the common denominator was until recently. I looked at these statements, and I was like, what, what is it that, who, who embodies this other than Jesus himself, right? Who embodies these things? The servant. The servant embodies these things. Read through those statements again and have in mind that Jesus is talking about the one who serves, the one who serves the people around them, the one who seeks the will of God to direct their steps. And you'll see that that's what he means, among other things, I'm sure. There's probably a hundred layers to this that I've never even begun to scratch the surface of, and that's the beauty of the words of Jesus. 
But the servant's heart, I think, is one of the key things that he's talking about here. One of the deepest needs of the human heart is community. And so this is, this is kind of what I want to do to put a bow on this. I feel like we talk about community here a lot, right? We talk about 242, and we talk about, you know, these life groups that we're doing with the Alive series, and it's awesome. And I think, for me, I found Jesus in community with a group of friends who I would have given anything for. And there's something special about living this out in community, the world has a complicated relationship with community. There are unjust governments and societies and really communities that people don't want to be a part of. People get hurt in community because sometimes people don't know how to handle themselves, right? Especially when you have a community like the church that has a little bit of structure. And then all of a sudden, somebody gets plugged in in the wrong place or somebody says the wrong thing to someone or somebody gets burnt somehow, and we get turned off to community, and people become islands. And I'm here to tell you that it doesn't work. Our culture, our society has become so individualistic. If you want to see the problems made manifest that are caused by a lack of community, look at my generation. Right? We have this social and political uh, Reformation in the 60s and 70s. And what happens? The individual is made king, right? In every regard. Socially, financially, politically, it's about me. It's about the individual. And this is a problem really in the church that has existed for hundreds of years. If you look back at the Reformation, the Reformation did amazing things, right? Martin Luther had some fantastic ideas. And, and he really weeded a lot of corruption out of the church. But I think one of the accidental byproducts of the Reformation is the way that we read the Bible alone. And we experience God alone. And that's never how it was meant to be. When you, when you push back too hard against community, you end up with people who are isolated, people who are lonely, I was just, I mean, I was listening to the radio on the way here this morning, and, and this is just crazy. They were talking about some statistics about loneliness among Americans, and they said that over 60% of Americans would say that they have fewer than three friends. I'm telling you people, it's tragic. This is not how it was supposed to be. Jesus gave himself for community. So in my quest to read a book a week for an indefinite period of time, I picked up a book recently called The Second Mountain by a guy named David Brooks. So David Brooks, to my, to my understanding, is not a Christian. He's uh, an op-ed columnist for a major U.S. newspaper who has uh, taken to writing about issues of culture and society and morality in the last five or ten years. And... Just If you look him up, I'm not endorsing his opinions. I'm not endorsing his politics. But what I am saying is that the Holy Spirit's poured out on all flesh, right? And so this guy, in the last few years, he started to write about living a moral life, whatever that means. And the world is hungry for this message. People need hope. They need something to hold on to. 
And so I'm going to read you a couple quotes from this book that I read because it's profound. He's keying in on something that the culture needs. He's keying in on something that our neighbors need, right? The people who live beside us. I mean, I'll be honest, like our neighbor, not, not these guys, but the, na- the next neighbor, he, he lives by himself, as far as I know, and I don't know if he has any friends. I know he bikes to work back and forth every day, and I've never tried to talk to him. And I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that, you know, because he could be one of these people who has fewer than three friends. David Brooks says, happiness is achieved when a personal desire is fulfilled. Permanent joy seems to emerge when desire is turned outward for others. The only people that he can seem to find who have embodied this are C.S. Lewis and St. Augustine. He's, he's, he's referencing all these different sources, all these different thinkers, all these secular psychologists and, and, and philosophers, but there are two people that he points out who he feels have ascended the second mountain, C.S. Lewis and St. Augustine. I think you know the common factor. Outpouring of love has become a steady force. He's saying something profound about community. He has realized something that I don't think a lot of the church has realized yet. we got to wake up to this eventually. If we're going to be about loving people, right? If we're truly going to be about representing Jesus into the earth, it's got to be done in community. It's got to be done with other people. We have to embrace this idea. Because Jesus, what does Jesus do when he starts his ministry? He calls 12 people to himself because he's like, I can't do this alone. I've got to have some people to walk the walk with me. I've got to have some people to teach. And I genuinely think Jesus probably learned from his disciples. It's not explicitly stated in the word, right? But as they make mistakes and as they do you know, the, the disciple things and they say dumb stuff and they do dumb stuff, Jesus probably learned about leading people, right? And I think that's so important. You know, when Jesus, when, when the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the desert to be tempted by Satan, that was a 40-day chunk out of his life that was the outlier. And I think some of us, some of us have been living in the desert being tempted by Satan, and that's our day-to-day, and that's wrong. I'm here to tell you that that was an exclusive season of Jesus' life, a very small portion of it. That was not his regular state of being. His regular state of being was connected to people. And so we've got to have the lens to be able to see when there's people around us who are living in that place. We weren't made to live in the desert. We were made to live in community. That was never the design. That was never the purpose. And so if we're looking at Revelation 21, if we're looking at humans communing with humans and God communing with humans, We see a picture of people together, and that's just how it's supposed to be. So how do we respond to that? Because I know that's a lot. I know that's hard. We've got to figure out what it looks like to radically love our neighbors. And I'm not asking you all to look the same. I'm not asking you all to look like a Todd White or a Billy Graham or John Richter, right? I'm asking you 
to give your will to God, give your preference to God. Say, Lord, here's my yes. Where would you direct my steps? Who would you have me encourage? Who would you have me speak to? Because we can make it, we can make it a goal, and I'm just going like, to give you guys a little sneak peek into what's coming. We're getting ready to start a series on the prophetic, and we're going to encourage you to make some goals about prophecy, growing in prophecy. But these goals, they've got to be directed by the Father, right? These goals aren't things that we just make where it's like, oh, I want to you know, minister more. I want to reach more people for Jesus, and we don't even consider him. It's got to be a thing where we give our yes and then figure out what comes after that. We've got to figure out what it looks like to operate as the, the church of Oxford under one banner. Think about the way that Paul wrote letters to the church in the New Testament. He writes to the church in a city. Paul would never write a letter to the Oxford Vineyard. He would write a letter to the church in Oxford. And so if we start to operate that way, which we have, we have started to operate that way, and I'm excited, but we got to keep pressing into that, right? If we start to operate that way, we're going to see so much of the kingdom unlocked in our city. If we start to put down the guards that we've put up between us and other churches, between us and other believers, because they do things different, or they believe things a little bit different, we're never going to get there. But if we come together, if we worship together, if we're able to lay down that difference, we're going to come into community, and the kingdom is going to be released there. The thing that I want to set myself on going forward is being available to the Father. If I make myself available to God for him to direct my steps, I'm certain that he will first ask me to begin to sacrifice for my wife. And then he'll begin to ask me to sacrifice for my close family and friends. And then he'll begin to ask me to sacrifice for the community that I live in. And, and it's, a, it's a progression. We want to make these huge leaps forward in sacrificing for the people around us. And we think, you know, we have to, we have to start a program or we have to, you know, do some, start by serving the person sitting beside you. Start there. And as you do that, you'll begin to see these things clearer. You'll begin to see what it looks like to sacrifice clearer because you have made yourself available to him. And so I want you to join me in challenging ourselves to reach out because that's how community begins. So I'm not saying you have to start a small group tonight. I'm not saying you have to you know, whatever. Just start making yourself available to God, and I can almost promise you that's what he's going to ask you to do. He's going to ask you to speak to his people. So I'm going to have the worship team come back up, and I'm going to pray, and we're going to worship. So Jesus, we just thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are faithful to take our yes, to take our will, to take our preference as an offering and shape it into something beautiful. You're not going to take our yes and hurt us with it. You're not going to take our yes and abuse it. You're going to take our will, you're going to take our preference, and God, we just make ourselves available to you. We surrender ourselves to you because we have to strive for it.
not because it's commanded of us, but because we look at the gospel and we say, that's what you did, Jesus. You are a servant. And like you are a servant, we want to serve. In Jesus' name, amen.